Hello, my name is Chris White and welcome to the first ever Boxing 20 Years Ago podcast. We're going back in the time machine to November of 1996 to bring you coverage of the first encounter between I and Mike Tyson and the real deal Evander Holyfield, a fight builders, finally. Joining me, we have, firstly, Bob Bamba. Good evening, Chris. Good evening, Bob. And also joining us, we have Dan Welling. Hello, you filthy casuals. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining me for this. Um, so, uh, the basic layout of the show, we're going to uh, go over the careers and the backgrounds of both fighters individually, covering their history separate, leading into this this uh, mega fight and this much-anticipated counter- encounter. We'll review and talk about the show itself, and uh, review the fight, and talk about the aftermath and whatnot, and where we go from here. So, uh, but, but what, what's the uh, early chat about? Sorry. Oh, the early chat. Well, I just said that I, more of a Dan's benefit than my own. We'll st- we'll keep this in, but more just for you know, me and Chris are, are more. Well, I'm more wrestling. Chris, you're a bit wrestling in MMA, and to do this kind of show, there was the thought of we need to bring someone in who knows what they're on about. So Dan, who's done a couple of the wrestling shows, knows a lot about boxing, um, and so more less for me and less for you, but more Dan to introduce kind of your own perspective on boxing in 2016 and kind of what you perhaps thought about this fight before we started looking at it properly in detail ahead of this show? Um, well, for me, it's quite interesting because this is like the first heavyweight fight um, pre-1998 that I've kind of really sat down and, and taken notes on. You know, I've watched all the classic Ali, Frazier and Foreman's and all that sort of stuff before, but I've been raised more on the Four Kings and obviously modern day stuff. So this is the first Mike Tyson fight um, like in its pomp, supposedly, that I've sat down and watched. And it was fascinating to watch the coverage, um, the pre-fight coverage of this and reading up about, you know, the the um, build up and, and the media's impression of Tyson and of the subsequent results coming after it. Um and yeah, as, as we'll talk about in the show, there's a couple of instances here which still have some sort of repercussions in modern day um, boxing, which I think is actually quite interesting again. There we go. Chris, back to you, I guess. Okay, yeah. So uh, from here, we'll just go into some background discussion of Mike Tyson, the man who to this day holds the record as the youngest fighters to win and unify the WBA, WBC and IBF heavyweight titles at just 20 years, 4 months, and 22 days old. So I'll give you a uh, bit of a background, a bit of biography on Tyson here, talk about his career and his path to this fight builders finally, and then uh, maybe refer to Bob and Dan afterwards for some comments and a bit more context surrounding the uh, biography. So he was born in Brooklyn, New York, on the 30th of June, 1966. Uh, the man he knew as his father abandoned Tyson's mother and she was left to raise him alone. Um, it's thought that this had quite a impact on him as a child. And uh, throughout his childhood, he lived in and around high crime neighborhoods and was regularly com- caught committing uh, petty crimes or caught fighting. And uh, he was often ridiculed for, his, for both his high-pitched voice and his lisp. And by the age of 13, Tyson had already been arrested 38 times. Um, and it was actually after one of these occasions while he was being uh, detained at a juvenile detention centre that his fighting ability was first discovered 
um, and he was introduced to appropriate people who ran boxing gyms in uh, his hometown in New York. Uh, his mother passed away when Tyson was just 16 years old, and she left Tyson in the care of his boxing manager and trainer, Customato. Tomato is credited by Tyson as building his confidence to a level which allowed him to turn his life around from juvenile delinquent to becoming the youngest world heavyweight champion in history, just two years into his pro boxing career. So uh had quite a huge impact. Tyson's often said he was the only father figure he ever really had. He wasn't introduced to him until he was around the age of 13. So, uh I mean, from 13 to 20, Tyson had a major turnaround. Uh, uh, he had his first professional fight on in uh, March 1985 as an 18-year-old. In his first professional year, he had 15 fights. He won all of them by knockout. He won 26 of his first 28 professional fights, all by knockout or TKO, and 16 of those came in the first round. His winning streak eventually left to his first title shot against Trevor Burbick in November 1986, which coincidentally is 30 years to this very day, the 22nd of November. Uh for the WBC Heavyweight Championship. Tyson went on to win the title that night by way of second round KO, and as I say, became the youngest heavyweight champion in history. By the following August, Tyson had added the two other major world titles, the WBA and IBF heavyweight titles to his collection, and became the first undisputed heavyweight champion to hold those particular three titles, uh, with a record of 31-0. and But alongside this rise, the absolute pinnacle of his sport, Controversy t- follows Tyson. Uh, he was headed towards a very public divorce at this time. Uh, Customato had passed away early into Tyson's career, just before he won that first world title, when he went off the rails a little bit. Um, and he fired his longtime trainer, who had been a protege of Demato, Kevin Rooney, um, and had very public falling outs with people in his own training camp. But despite these issues, outside the ring, Tyson was able to win both of his fights in 1989 against Frank Bruno and Carl Williams. Uh, by 1990, though, um, in what is to this day viewed as probably the biggest upset in the history of the sport, uh, Mike Tyson on the 11th of February was defeated by 10th round KO by Buster Douglas. Uh, for the fight, Tyson had opened up as a 1-42 to favourite. And uh, at this time, uh, Tyson and Evander Holyfield were actually being uh, lined up to face each other as Holyfield was the number one contender to the undisputed title. But that loss to Douglas completely derailed it. Tyson would bounce back though and win his next four fights before he would once again find himself in the centre of absolute controversy. He was arrested in July 1991 for rape leading to his conviction in February 92. He was sentenced to six years in prison but would only serve three. He was released in March 1995 and resumed his boxing career immediately. His first comeback fight would both set pay-per-view viewership and revenue records, grossing 96 million US dollars. By March 96, Tyson earned himself a title, defeating Frank Bruno by way of a third-round TKO to regain his WBC heavyweight title at the first opportunity. He then added the WBA belt by defeating Bruce Seldon in September, and this led to the highly anticipated fight between Mike Tyson and Vander Holyfield, which was dubbed Finally. So, uh, Dan, if you'd like to uh, add any comments on sort of the background of Tyson leading into his fight, that's sort of just a, a, quite a vague overview of his career up until this point. And then we'll go to Bob afterwards. Um, yeah, I think the, the thing that you can't really describe in the biography is that Tyson at this time is 
almost, you know, indestructible, has got this aura of indestructibility about him where his opponents are kind of already defeated before they even get in the ring. It's just, you know, you look back to those performances where he absolutely flattened, you know, kind of every challenger put in his way and then he destroys Larry Holmes, you know, who who ruled the heavyweight division in the 80s. And then completely, and I mean absolutely, walloped Michael Spinks in a round um, in what was kind of big dubbed as the biggest heavyweight fight um, since, you know, Ali Frazier. You know, Spinks was the lineal champion at that point. Tyson was the, you know, the guy with all the belts. This is a this is a great test between two undefeated American heavyweights. This is the, you know, it's, it's, it couldn't get any bigger in heavy boxing. And Tyson literally wiped, wipes this guy out around. Um, that you know, that is an incredible achievement and something that you have to consider when you look at how much of a heavy favor going into this fight Mike Tyson was. Because yes, he'd been defeated by Buster Douglas, but you know, looking back in hindsight, you see that the guy that stepped in the ring against Douglas was nowhere close to what the guy that stepped in the ring with like Holmes and Tucker and, and Spinks was. He'd been cutting back on training. His obviously his personal life was all over the place. He was unmotivated. He hated the sport in general. And part of the reason why he's so much of a favor going into this fight beforehand is that, you know, he come back from his prison sentence and he's, kind of picked off where he left off after that, um, you know, he looked like the Tyson of old wiping out, um, you know, I can't remember the top of my head, but the guy off, you know, broke paper with records with, um, destroys poor old Frank Bruno in three rounds. And, you know, this guy looks like he's back to his best, you know, coming after um, that kind of turbulent five, six year period that he was um, kind of going through post Douglas. So Tyson at the minute is the ultimate evil bad guy in boxing that you've not kind of seen since Sonny Liston um, when he was vanquished by, you know, um, Cassius Clay uh, slash Muhammad Ali. We've been waiting kind of for the bad guy to kind of arrive in the heavyweight division again. And Tyson is, is filling up that role very, very nicely going into this fight. Bob, anything to add on the early days of Mike Tyson? No, not massively. I thought I think both of you've done a done an excellent job covering that. I mean, just to really underline the, the the kind of thing that I'll always underline, which is that Tyson was a huge star going into this fight. I mean, maybe that's an obvious thing to say, but he was. And as you, Chris, as you alluded to, uh, you know, if there was ever any thought that both five years out of the the ring and five years out of the ring, but in the spotlight because of a rape conviction might affect Mike Tyson's not necessarily popularity, but the, the aura surrounding him. I think the, the, the fights that were coming in to this leading up to this one were proved that beyond doubt, he was, was still a big star. And also the, and we'll come to this when we cover Holyfield, was that a lot of people, I think if I'm right, just saw this as a stepping stone onto him facing Lennox Lewis. Chris, was that right? Yeah, uh, much in the same way. Um, I guess they viewed Buster Douglas in 91. I mean, work was already in motion to set up the the first encounter between Holyfield and Tyson. And uh, Douglas completely derailed that. It wasn't like the Douglas fight. Uh, like the Douglas fight was always planned, but it was it was just seen as sort of a... Uh, a gimme that Tyson would walk through him as he had Did done. You one to forty-two in your nose. One to forty-two was what he opened up at, yes, and uh, which is an absurd price for a two-horse race, um, really. And 
Well, ironically, they state in the actual pay-per-view um, and the card, one of the undercard guys, Michael Mora, um, who was the IBF champion going into this fight. You know, he was meant to fight Tyson because all the commentators are going, oh, he wins this one, you know, send up uh, Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield. But Mike Tyson, you know, it's a really good fight for him at payday coming up. And Tyson's just going to blow through Holyfield. Um, and then the plan, obviously, as you said, Bob, to, to unify the division um, against Lewis. Um down in about November '97, um, after you know a year after beating Holyfield, so there's there's definitely grand plans for Tyson's uh, you know return to the summit of heavyweight boxing right now. I think this fight was seen as an easy an easy win for Tyson, and also something that could draw. There was a story to this fight in that it had been scheduled twice, and, well, or in the works once and officially scheduled once, and fallen through and it never happened and it was all these years later and Holyfield like it was being billed on the pay-per-view uh, the, the youngest heavyweight champion in history against the only cruiserweight to ever win the heavyweight title and good versus evil there was a backstory to, to this fight and it's sort of it's, it's what Dan alluded to as he as he uh, called me and Bob casuals at the start but this this is the fight that would bring casuals in. This is the fight that breaks records. It has a story. Uh, Tyson as a star transcended the sport, and this was just sort of another one, to, another way to keep that train rolling. Um, but yeah, uh, so we'll uh, move on for now to the backstory behind Evander Holyfield and his journey uh, to this showdown in November 1996. Evander Holyfield. He was born on the 19th of October 1962 in Atwater, Alabama. He was the youngest of nine children. Um, early in his life, his family moved to Atlanta and he began boxing training at the age of seven. He's a self-confessed late bloomer, though. Holyfield, by the time he graduated, was only five foot eight, a far cry from the six foot near three he would reach in his early 20s in his boxing career. He won a silver medal for the USA at the 1983 Pan American Games and a bronze medal in the 1984 Olympic Games. He turned professional later that year and Holyfield started out in the light heavyweight division, where he amassed a swift 4-0 record before moving up to the cruiserweight division in July 1985. Within a year, he was a world champion in that division, winning the WBA cruiserweight title. By, the, by early 1988, Holyfield will become the first universally recognised champion, adding the IWF and WBC and lineal titles to his resume in the cruiserweight division, amassing a record of 18-0. After this fight, Holyfield announced that he would be moving up to heavyweight with a clash with undisputed champion Mike Tyson firmly in his sights. At heavyweight, he improved his record to 23-0, winning his first fights at heavyweight all before the turn of the decade. He was gearing up for the long awaited showdown with Tyson, and as I previously stated, those plans were thrown out due to Tyson's shot loss to Buster Douglas. Holyfield would go on to defeat Buster Douglas for the WBA, WBC, and I'd IBF heavyweight titles in Douglas's next fight after defeating Tyson. In his first defence, Holyfield will go on to defeat George Foreman by unanimous decision. Holyfield's next scheduled defence was meant to be against Mike Tyson in November '91, but the felt through felt sorry the fight fell through due to injury to Tyson and his their rape conviction. Holyfield would instead go on to successfully defend his title against Burt Cooper and Larry Holmes. Holyfield would lose his championships, as well as suffering the first defeat of his professional career in a loss to 
underdog and Ridiot Bow. Holyfield would bounce back with a win over Alex Stewart before defeating Riddick Bow in the rematch, regaining his heavyweight titles in November 93. But then immediately lose the titles in his first defence against Michael Mora. In the aftermath of this fight, uh, Holyfield was diagnosed with a heart condition and announced his retirement from boxing. However, within a year, Holyfield had passed the requisite medical exams required for him to return to the sport. He stated the reason he had been misdiagnosed with a heart condition a year prior was due to high levels of morphine in his system. He passed all the tests and was given a license. He made his compact with a victory over Olympic gold medalist Ray Mercer, who would then go on to lose the rubber match to Riddick Bow by an eighth round knockout. In May 96, Holyfield would defeat Body. Holyfield would pick up another victory, which set up the long-awaited clash with Mike Tyson for November '96. So over to you, Dan, for a bit more background into the context behind Holyfield's, particularly uh, after he came back from the short-lived retirement. Yeah, I think that's um, Holyfield at this point in time in 1996. It feels like the the outlaw gunslinger who has gone away for you know a year or two and then come back and see all these young dogs arriving. Um, I'm going to try and take them out. And a lot of people thought, oh, maybe you should be staying away and resting your body because, you know, these guys like Bo, Lewis, and now with the returning Tyson coming in, you're a bit outgunned here, pal. Um, and that kind of seemed true when he lost to Bo in that rubber match. I mean, um, Bo was a silver medalist in the Olympics, um, and then the Holyfield was a little bit lighter, but you still get the sense that Holyfield's time had had definitely peaked and was to, depending on who you asked, um, coming to an end. You know, some people thought he was in serious danger for his health when he signed up to fight Tyson. Um, and many people thought that, yeah, when you lose to Michael Mora and you're losing to, to Bo again, you really need to step away from, you know, elite heavyweight boxing and maybe moving into a kind of advisor role. Cause at this point he's 44. You know, that's no, he's no spring chicken when it comes to, you know, heavy no, boxing. I know. 34 at this point. 34, sorry, my mistake. Um, yeah, so, you know, I think that, depending on who you ask, that Holyfield is definitely the kind of fifth or sixth best heavyweight at the minute. You know, you got Tyson Bowe and Lewis at the top. You got Michael Mora kind of floating around, um, four or five. And then Holyfield is probably kind of five and six. So when you put it like that, fighting a guy like Tyson, you go, oh, well, the number one heavyweight's fighting the number six or fifth. And, and, and although they're big names in terms of recent record, you can understand why some of the bookies had Tyson um, a long, long favourite. Uh, Bob, anything to add on the Holyfield stuff? I mean, yeah, 25 to 1 when this fight was first announced. Um, I, well, they, they kept saying it on commentary. Um, and that was... <sighs> Was there a perception this was kind of how do you feel? You're calling the kind of the, the the old gunslinger to to kind of push on that line. Was there the perception this was kind of the last chance saloon for Holyfield? Um, yes. Given um, his, given his recent, and you also look at his record following the fight, and and, and you alluded to his age. I mean, his last fight actually was in 2011. Shock horror, but I don't know. We probably won't get that far that far down the line. But th- there was just I, I I got the impression kind of reading around it that. People kind of went into this fight and just assumed Tyson, with this aura and this run that he had going into the fight, was just going to clean up Holyfield. Dan, was that right? 
Yeah, definitely. I think there was a poll of there's not there's, you know whenever there's a big fight, there's the annual kind of poll of the um, boxing writers across um, you know the you know big publications. And I can't remember the top of my head, but I think it's like over 29 or 39 people were asked, and only one person from the Boxing Globe predicted Ovanda Holyfield would win. And when you look at it like that, you know, you know, on paper, what is attracting these casual fans is this grueling contest between two big name heavyweight fighters. It's insane to think that only one person is predicting one of the fighters is going to win. It's it's insane. Um, and he, and he, he was, what, was know, it 11, 12 to one come fight time? Was that right? So I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah, is that he, uh, at the weigh-ins, he, he went into 18 to 1, and by the time the fight started, he was in at 12. So, it, 12 to 1 in a two-horse race. That's I, how little I mean, people thought of it. It takes a lot of money to move a 25 to 1 into a 12 to 1, though. Um, yeah. So, there must have been a lot of late money coming in on Holyfield from somewhere. In hindsight, though, you uh, look at the record that he was coming in with. I mean, I obviously had that kind of layoff of the um, health scare, but, you know, he's beaten a gold medalist in Mercer. He's taken another established heavyweight grade of the 90s in bow two and one. Only kind of the only one that really kind of stands out as a guy, well, maybe he is over the hill, was that defeat to Mora, who was another kind of light heavyweight who was moving up. So, you know, hindsight looking back, it is kind of strange how, you know, the aura of Tyson and the perceived, um, you know, um, lack of form that Holyfield was coming into this fight with really affected those booking odds. Yeah, I mean, on paper, as you say, he, he had he's, he'd lost three of his last seven. Um, so, I mean, against Tyson, you can see it. Like, I don't know. I don't know that these odds. Like, I know they're startling considering the outcome of the fight. But, I mean, you wouldn't have. I can't imagine if this fight was today, we'd be sitting here looking at them and thinking, "Oh, there's some good value in there." You'd be sitting at the, you'd be looking at them and thinking, it's, it's, even though you're getting a lot of value, it's, it's a waste of money back in Holyfield in this fight. I, I, I feel it's like- an interesting thing. Just before we we, we move on, we just uh, this will become a an interesting story when we get to the fight itself. The talk of Tyson's post post. Uh, after he came out of prison, Tyson's four fights leading into this one went a combined like three rounds, no, sorry, combined like seven rounds or something like that. And yet you look at, um, Holyfield's fight record just in terms of rounds, forget results, in terms of rounds since the, well, the Foreman fight went 12 rounds, Burt Cooper went seven. His next five fights all went 12 rounds. This is also over the course of a three year period. Went 10 rounds with Ray Mercer. He went eight rounds with Riddick Bowe in a loss. Five rounds against Bobby Cruz going in. Like, and this, if there's one thing you can say about Holyfield, I haven't seen much of these fights. I'm just judging them on the numbers. But this is a guy who's used to being in the ring for a long-ass time. And that was very, very key, I think, as this this fight went on. So I was just looking at his record as we were talking, and that kind of struck me now. No, yeah. Um, he definitely had more miles on the clock, both in age, and obviously Tyson had that, that huge gap. And uh, sometimes you'd look at that and say it's a massive disadvantage, but it was clear watching this fight play out that those rounds and that and being in that position so many times that Tyson looked like a fish out of water at times and he had his game plan. The way he'd always boxed really was it's almost sort of not to say without a game plan, but what is very one dimensional. 
um, in a lot of his fights because he could be because he had the power to finish guys uh, and finish them quick with the way he boxed and the power he had. Um, whereas Holyfield had a much better game plan from the off and was able to adapt throughout. So uh, it's, yeah, it was interesting to see how all of that played into the fight with a bit of hindsight. Um, so uh, before we uh, move on to the next bit, just a bit more detail on the stories behind their previously scheduled fights falling through. So Tyson and Holyfield were originally scheduled to fight on the 18th of June, 1990, in Atlantic City. Uh, Tyson, who was the undisputed champion at the time, was guaranteed $22 million from the fight, and Holyfield was guaranteed $11 million. But as previously said, those plans went down the drain, Tyson losing to uh, Buster Douglas uh, via 10th round knockout in February. Uh, in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, the second time they were scheduled to fight, Tyson Holyfield was the 8th of November, 91, at Caesars Palace in Vegas. Uh, it was set to be Holyfield's second title defence. He was guaranteed $30 million, with Tyson guaranteed $15 million. Uh, but due to uh, Tyson's indictment on rape charges and uh, a rib injury that Tyson sustained, because the fight was actually scheduled to go ahead, um, despite uh, Tyson being charged with what he had been. He, the trial was coming up early January uh, 92, um, but due to the injury, the fight didn't happen. So on paper, it, it seems like the uh, rape charges were the reason for the fight falling through, but in fact, it would have gone ahead um, regardless of that. And this sort of plays into the storyline and the hype b- between uh, the finally bout from 96 that we, we, we will be reviewing. Um, they, uh, Tyson's trainer uh, talks about some comments uh, Holyfield made back in 91 regarding Tyson and his rape trial. And they seem to get Tyson very uh, very angry and uh, he claimed it showed a lack of respect and whatnot. So it plays into the story of the wider fight. Um, but then Tyson was in fact convicted and sent to prison so that completely postponed the fight until... Uh, it did occur in November of 96. There's, uh, there also is a bit more backstory. Um, this plays into more of the hind, uh, with hindsight, with knowing how the uh, fight plays out. But um, the New York Times wrote a piece the night of the fight in the aftermath of it. And they said the reason Holyfield was able to win was because he wasn't afraid uh, so many people get in the ring with Tyson, and they're almost too intimidated to punch, too intimidated to counter-punch and react to Tyson, and it shuts people down. But Holyfield wasn't afraid, because they'd been it. Tyson and Holyfield had actually been in the ring before together, uh, when they were both Golden Gloves champions in uh, 1984. Holyfield was still a light heavyweight at them, but they did some sparring in the gym one day. They met and they did some sparring, uh, those two. They had their trainers there, and uh, within the first round, things got so out of hand and so vicious that trainers had to jump in and separate them before the three minutes ended. Tyson was only 18 at the time and walked around with like the confidence and swagger you'd expect from an 18-year-old professional with, with a sort of a, a dark past, shall we, shall we say, and lots of running with the law. Uh, Holyfield wasn't intimidated, though, and he said uh, in 91, he told his trainer that he absolutely had to make the match with Tyson in the aftermath of Holyfield beating Buster Douglas. 
because it was the only way he would ever feel like the true champion. Regardless of Tyson losing to Douglas, he knew that if he wanted to, wanted to be considered the champion, he would have to beat Tyson himself. And he said that he knew him and he claimed that he knew enough from their encounter seven years previously in those three minutes. He learned enough about Mike Tyson that he knew where he ever to step into the ring with him. He would beat him. So he demanded that the match was made. And uh, it was actually Holyfield pushing for that match that was eventually cancelled by the rib injury and Tyson's conviction. So there's a little uh, bit more interest there. Holyfield is obviously a very um, religious man and a lot of his pre-fight talk has uh, religious imagery and, and layers to it. So uh, the idea of him knowing from then and this like spiritual guidance that he knew that he would beat Tyson from 1984, if they were ever to fight, he knew he would win. Just adds another layer, especially with the sort of tagline of this fight being portrayed as good versus evil. Uh, anything else we want to talk about before we move into sort of building towards the actual show and the weigh-ins and stuff? I've got nothing. Uh, Dan, anything from you? Um, just I thought I found it interesting that um, I found an interview of Holyfield and he said that... Um, he was looking at the Frank Bruno fight, um, about, you know, Tyson had a, a year beforehand and he saw that Bruno walk into the ring looked like he'd was about to meet his, you know, his gallows effectively. He was terrified and that, you know, automatically kind of, you know, it's all going that yes, almost all the people that Tyson's fights are defeated before they even step in the ring. And if he had any chance at all, you know, he had a he had to, you know, not be afraid of him, which he clearly didn't, and and b the fact that he had to be quick. You know, he he trained really hard for being for looking for speed, to look, you know, looking for movement, but also being able to kind of you know that um, stamina, which you know, which in some respects, you know, those 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 rounds in the ring that we've mentioned can wear you down, but as well as as you mentioned, Bob, you can also get. You know, just ring stamina that you sometimes just can't get from just running the roads and and doing miles and miles in the gym. And I, I, you know, going to the modern day, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's this whole kind of you know scenario just feels a bit more like a Mayweather Pacquiao sort of thing, where you know, on paper, you know, Tyson and Holyfield are at their best around you know eighty eight, ninety one, and that's ideal when this fight should have taken place. And probably then you might have been looking at a different outcome. Um, but you know, we're five years later. These two guys get in the ring, and they're two different. They're two different guys, effectively. You know, Tyson is you know a bit more. You know, he's got much more kind of bravado about himself. Got more cocksure about himself. And Holyfield is a lot more worn, but more experienced, and it adds more facets to the fight. Which you know sometimes adds. You know, we we often complain in boxing about fights taking too long to materialize when it's clearly obvious that you know these two guys need to have a you know, a scrap, but Sometimes, you know, giving it an extra year or two, or in this case, five years, um, adds more intrigue and, in, and more interesting facets to, to the individual fights. I mean, not that you would have said it, uh, as, as we discussed, sort of the betting odds and how much of a favourite Tyson was, but when you look at his record with hindsight after this fight, I mean, in that millennium, he only has three more fights after this one. And this is November '96. And that's one loss, one no contest, and one win. Um, and that, like, when you think about that, and then you get to 2000 onwards, Tyson has three losses in his next 
seven fights, I think, from 2000 onwards. And there's a no contest in there as well. So he's losing more than he's winning um, from this point onwards. It's fair to say, as you say, this isn't this isn't the Mike Tyson everyone feared, and it's it's interesting. I, and I'm not sure what the explanation for this is, but Tyson had been on such a tear, uh, like you say, with Frank Bruno and whatnot in the build up to this one. It's funny how this was somewhat the beginning of the end, or this Tyson was never the same again after this. Um, and yeah. you can't really point the finger. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I think I'll talk about that more when um, we get to the end of the fight, but it's a big turning point on a lot of legacy uh, defining um, scenarios. Yeah, it's just it's just strange. We will get in more depth at the end, but it's just strange how the reasoning behind it seems absolutely not to be the three-and-a-half-year gap due to prison because he comes out and he picks up where he left off. So something happens uh, in 96, seemingly. Uh, between September and November, which uh, causes this, and this is in, it, I, I suppose we'll never really know. But it's, it's just an interesting. What of the thing that happened was just he ended up facing and getting beaten by Evander Holyfield, wasn't? And I was reading a lot of the pieces kind of right after the time. They just said you know, right, right after the fight, as in like within the days after, and they kind of said finally Tyson's faced the guy that can take a punch from him. Like when I, I watched of the, of my preparation kind of for this show, I watched the um I watched a couple of his fights from from post after he got released from prison. Um, the Bruno fight was one of them, and it was just kind of the feeling that he'd storm out the blocks early doors, land a couple, and then I think I watched the Selden fight as well, the, the title fight. And the Selden fight in particular, although I get the feeling Holyfield learnt more from the Bruno fight where Bruno was able to kind of not run away from Tyson, but I think the mistake Bruno kept making was he kept walking into punches, and I think Holyfield learnt enough from that as well. But the Selden fight, Tyson came out and just landed a few, and Selden just ended up on the run. I think one of the reasons it might have it might have fell off the cliff was that it was just a simple fact that he'd faced someone that was as good as he was. Yeah, no, completely fair, fair assessment. Um, any other discussion points before we move into the specifics of the show itself? No, I think it's time to move on. Okay, so we get to uh, the fight builders finally. Uh, at the weigh-ins, Tyson weighed in the heaviest he has ever weighed in for, for a professional fight, 222 pounds. Holyfield weighed in at 215 pounds. Um, at this stage, uh, having opened up at 25 to 1, Vanna Holyfield was now as short as 12 to 1. I say as short, as still massive, massive ones. Uh, Holyfield says at the weigh-ins that he is there to do what the Holy Spirit leads him to do. Mike Tyson then uh, we get a video package from Mike Tyson, and he says, this fight is good versus evil. He's the good little church boy. I'm the bad, villainous, black man turned Muslim. I'm rotten, I'm mean, I'm the bully. I want to hurt him. My only objective is to hurt him. It's a really wonderful promo. Like, everything about Tyson's aura at this stage. I know it's uh, speaking massive obvious here, but he's he's just an absolute star. You can see that why he's box office and why he sets these records. Uh, John Horn, Mike Tyson's trainer, um, he states that if this fight is good versus evil, I know that the good is Mike Tyson. Evander Holyfield does not respect Mike Tyson as a person. Uh, Horn had a lot of uh, personal issues with Evander Holyfield. Um, 
Horn had previously accused Holyfield of saying that he would never fight a rapist. And this had taken place before Mike Tyson had been tried and was regarding their initially scheduled encounter back in 1991. Holyfield denied outright saying this. The controversy seems to stem from a Chicago Sun-Times article which paraphrased Holyfield as saying that as champion he would refuse to defend his title against the convicted rapist. This contains no actual quote saying anything resembling this and just seemed to be there to sort of spur up a bit of controversy. Uh, aside from the good versus evil, as I said previously, uh, the main sort of billing of this fight is the youngest heavyweight world champion versus the only cruiserweight to ever win a world heavyweight title. Uh, Dan, any comments on any of those uh, little sound bites leading into the pay-per-view? No, just just them two playing on their roles really well and everyone buying into it, which is what you need to do. Absolutely. Um, so we uh, some more specifics about the show. For this fight, Tyson was guaranteed $30 million and Evander Holyfield was guaranteed $12 million. It was held at the MGM Grand with a crowd of 16,000 people and produced a gate of $14.1 million. Uh, the fight was televised live on pay-per-view by Showtime, generated 1.5 million buys, producing over 79 million. Uh, Bob, at this stage, so we're getting to the start of the pay-per-view, did you want to take over and run through some of the uh, undercard for the show? Well, the only... Uh, I know Dan probably wants to discuss a bit more on the Akin One Day fight, because uh, there, there were four matches on the card, certainly, that I saw. There was a women's match, which in itself surprised me a little bit, just just because um and then i've got some pretty detailed notes on both uh, and uh, mora but if uh dan have you got anything on the akin one day fight because i know you want to talk more generally just about the, the the slightly odd nature of having three different world title heavyweight title fights on the same card one after another um, and also any thoughts on the akin one day fight yeah um it's like the biggest bone of contention in, in boxing at the minute is the um multiple world championships and I know Bob you've always had the attitude of oh boxing's always had you know too many world titles well there was a time when there was only one and then there was only two and then that kind of made like you know all oh, the possibility of unification fight is even better then because then we can find out who really is number one and then it comes to four and then it's just ridiculous because then you can get guys like Akamwande and Russian I, don't, I can't remember his name off the top of my head um Fighting and being able to call themselves a world champion when you've got, and when you've got Tyson and Holyfield, you know, fighting <coughs> two fights before, two fights afterwards, being able to claim, oh, they're the real world champions. It's, oh, it's infuriating. And I don't understand, like, the people who turned up to this event thinking, oh, great, we get to see the world heavyweight title in action. And then, the, you know, Jimmy Lennon Jr. comes on the microphone and goes, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the WBO heavyweight champion of the world. And they're going, what the hell is this? Where's, the, where's Mike Tyson? It, it's, I, I can't believe the stupidity of, of, of a thought to have three world heavyweight title fights on one card. It, 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 it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous concept and it's a, a bane on modern boxing, which is starting to originate in 1996. Because at this point, WBO as the fourth governing body is still kind of thought of as, as the far away and lesser version of the world title. Because you've had you know, quite you know, quite big fighters like Mora, ironically, um, 
Eubank, De La Hoya, um, they've held the WBO title in the past, but they've either grown into the role as, as a kind of Hall of Fame boxer with the title, or they've vacated the belt as soon as a big payday comes along to cover a serious world title fight. You know, at this point, the WBO is a bit of a joke. And, yeah, the fight itself was a bit of a joke because I can one day's game, but he's not world champion level. Um, traditional tall guy with a jab and a straight right hand, and that's, that's about it. Um, and, you know, as we'll get on to the, you know, the, the two fights after this are much higher skill level um, in comparison. I, I just thought it was really, again, a really baffling decision to have three heavyweight title fights on the same card that, you know, it's bad enough when you've got different divisions, but having three world title fights in the same class, world weight class is beyond belief. Ridiculous. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, and uh, I, I won't pretend to be a big boxing fan, but one of the things I've always kind of said, just, just from the outside looking in was this idea that, you know, you've got a lot of different weight divisions and a lot of, a lot of different governing bodies and you're doing like four times 15 or whatever it is, and you've got 60 different world championships. That's, you know, I'm not saying, you know, my maths might be out a bit, but you kind of get the drift of the point I'm making. And yeah, you're right. It is a bit weird saying there's three different world heavyweight title fights. And it's like, what? It just doesn't, you know, it's like, okay, you know, it almost, it kind of just waters down everything you're talking about. It's like, you know, it's, it was the world championship, world title fight in the heavyweight division for three different governing bodies. It's just like, okay, is Tyson the main guy then or is he not? And not that I think many people thought about it or many people really cared, but I think, Dan, you're right. It's just an odd thing to do. That would be my, uh, my impression. Chris, any thoughts on, on, on that? And I'll, I'll take us to the more fight. I, I mean, I completely agree with everything you're both saying. And I would add to it, it sort of undercuts the guys. And I know Tyson's the drawer and Tyson's the star. Tyson's the one that attracts the casuals. Um, but does it not sort of undercut the importance of Michael Mora, Francois Bonfa and the IBF championship and all these the, the WBO Championship. I know you said they're a bit of a joke anyway at this stage, but I mean, like, they're on the undercard of like the world title, but they are meant to be the world title. Like, it undercuts the belt, it undercuts the organization, and to an extent, it undercuts the fighters. But it undercuts this, everybody. Is the yeah, yeah. There's like, the, like, world, the, the world title brand at this point is mean, is almost meaningless. You know, the the phrase world champion is so diluted the minute. That it takes a guy like Tyson, De La Hoya, you know, these, these world class names like Tony Jones Jr. to really kind of, kind of move past it and be a draw because at the minute just saying you're world champion isn't good enough. No, the, it's, it's absolutely clear that the belt uh, means nothing in terms of drawing power and it's just the stars. If Tyson was fighting for the IBF championship, then that would be main event on the card. If he's fighting for the WBO championship, then that would be the main event. doesn't matter whatever belt it is. It doesn't matter if he doesn't have a belt. Tyson's on the card. He's going to be in the main event. He's the draw. The belts are almost secondary. It undercuts the sport, um, undercuts the guys holding the belts. It's just just a massive negative to the whole thing. Um, really. I guess I guess we can probably discuss that more a bit at the end. Um, but, yeah, I, I think yeah the, the, the sentiment that Dan makes in 20 years, I don't think it's 
particularly changed. Um, Dan, in short, before we move on, is it fair to say it's having a detrimental effect on boxing right now? Uh, yeah, definitely, because you get to the stage where um, a guy is clearly the number one in the world. You know, I'll, I'll use him on this. I'll, you've got Gandhi Golovkin, who is by far and away, most people say he's the, most, he's the, middleweight, he's the best middleweight in the world. And he can't unify the division because there's one guy holding another belt and he, and he can claim to be a world champion. And it's like, well, you're not. But, you know, and, and it kind of confuses the situation. It confuses the situation for, for casuals, you know, going, who, well, who is the world champion? It's like Anthony Joshua. When he won his IBF title, everyone was going, oh my God, he's a world champion in Britain. It's like, well, Tyson Fury's won. He's got three of the belts. Surely he's the world champion. And it's just, and it's a completely, confusing mess of a situation and it means that the actual that the big fights themselves don't have to be made because you've got a guy who can sit on a world title and go well i'm getting paid i'm a world champion i don't need to fight him and it means that also the kind of contenders coming up for the belts you're up who are you know young prospects or grizzled veterans they've got more options so they can take on kind of lesser fights for world titles they can wait and hang back instead of going for it and and making these great fights that we want to see, and it just it just dilutes everything. It gives it presents too many options for, you know, guys who are either not good enough or guys who just aren't willing to play ball and make these fights and, and hold out for easy money, um, to get away with it. And unfortunately, it's not going to it's not going to go away anytime soon, I believe, because they're both entrenched in boxing. They're both greedy, and they, they make FIFA look like you know charitable organization with their um, money grabbing backhanded um, dealing so in short yes it is a bit of a detrimental uh, curse on boxing right now in short in long but yes very well said uh, we move on to the well, semi main event of this card Francois Botha versus Michael Moore for the IBF heavyweight title well, I think originally I wasn't really sh- planning on reviewing this but I kind of sat down in um, in preparation to kind of write my notes for the main event and thought I'll just score this match just to kind of get my eye in and that kind of thing and this fight actually turned out to be quite good and Moore as, well, as it turns out for me having researched him since uh, is also quite a significant part. Sort of, he, his career intertwines with both guys, both before and after. Anyway, for a slightly more brief biography than Chris gave us on uh, Tyson Holyfield early on, just a quick introduction to both guys. Michael Moore defeated Evander Holyfield for the lineal IBF and WBA heavyweight titles on April 22nd, 1994, via majority decision, becoming the first ever Southpaw to win a heavyweight title. In November 94, he outboxed George Foreman for nine rounds, but was then knocked out in the 10th. Francois Botha is a South African coming into the fight with a 35-0 and record with one no contest. He defeated Axel Schultz to win the IBF heavyweight title in 1995, but ended up testing positive for Nandrolone. The win isn't recognised and neither is the title. Um... The, the title victory either. Uh, subsequently to this night, uh, both ended up losing to the following names. Uh, Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, Vladimir Klitschko and Evander Holyfield in 2010. 
yikes these guys go on for a while anyway i won't do a round by round on this needless to say that it was a a very interesting and very entertaining fight i think from from the outset and throughout it was clear that Moore was the the more skilled boxer i don't think anyone will necessarily disagree with that um but every time it felt like he was getting close to finishing the fight he wasn't able to do it i think that was a struggle from conditioning as well and what was also quite interesting i found was that every the the, the rounds were more attacked more um, were the rounds where both were kind of fought back more. So it's one of those things that the more Moore tried to finish the fight, the more damage he was sustaining. Um, in the end, um, probably he just hit his superiority kind of bore out in the end. There's a great bit at the end of round seven where we go to the corner and his corner man who's got a proper stereotypical New York action says, accent says, I swear to God, I'll have him stop the fight, him being the rep. You want to stop the fight? Um, but the match, I, I scored it very up and down. Like, as in, I, I gave both of the first round and then Mora 10-8 in the third. Um, and then Mora was on top until six. And then I scored both of winning both seven and eight. And then it finally, I think, as the rounds bore on, um, Mora just superiorly bore out. And then it all kind of came to a, came to a head really in the 11th round. Uh, we had a ref stoppage, um, just to, to cover a cut. Oh, sorry, there's a Vaseline that was covering cut, the load there. Um, and the both was really blowing and more just finally kind of laid into him. The crowd were kind of going nuts at this point and more nearly ended it. If the bell hadn't rung, he probably would have ended the fight shortly afterwards. We started round 12 and more just came out the blocks and the ref called it in the end. Um, Dan, this, uh, as I, I wasn't planning on or preparing for this match in any way before I sat down to watch the show for the review of the main event. Um, but a big surprise and a really interesting and exciting back and forth fight. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, both has got a very fan friendly style in that he has no defense whatsoever. So when Mora is, you know, popping out his jab and he's throwing these nice, you know, you just saw both his heads just snap back routinely through throughout the fight. But as you said, he, he, he had a, he had a good enough chin that he could handle the majority of Moore's punches, but obviously not good enough that he would be able to outlast and kind of walk through them. So it was, it led to a very entertaining scrap. And, and I thought it was one of the most entertaining headweight fights I've seen. Um, Moore's defense is, was very good. He's technically sound. And I think overall, both his punches, whilst they were quite, um, aesthetically pleasing and they were, um, you know, high volume. I think quite a few of them were hit blocked uh, or I or didn't get through as well as Mora's did. And that definitely, um, kind of led to what happened in the kind of rounds, to, rounds nine to 11, where both were just ran out of gas and was just exhausted. And by the 11th round, he, he was literally out on his feet. I mean, he, I, I honestly thought the corner should stop it by. When he gets to 11, because he is, he is gone. He, and yeah, I, I thought this was actually really good. And Moore is probably a forgotten name of the 90s in heavyweight boxing, you know. And, you know, and as, as we said before in the fight, it was, this was meant to be his audition to fight Tyson after, after, um, after this night. So in that respect, he got his job done. He did what he needed to do. And yeah, just a really, a really crowd pleasing fight. Yeah. Moore ended up, um, two fights later uh facing holyfield um in uh 
1997 as well. Just a, a very interesting quote from round 10, and this is how much both guys are blowing. Commentator says, some of the punches Mora is being hit by are so slow they're being sent by Pony Express. That was the, uh, that was the line. Chris, what did you, uh, what, what do you think of, uh, of this semi main? Well, I struggled a great deal to watch, uh, a bulk of the pay-per-view. Um, so rather than watching this fight on the pay-per-view, I watched this one on YouTube. It's pretty easy to type it in, pop straight up. And it was, uh, the Sky Sports coverage. And you had Jim Watt on Coventry. And, uh, Jesus. at the end, at the end of the, uh, 11th round, uh, both guys come out uh, and, uh, he's talking about how the ref should stop it because he's just absolutely out on his feet. And he's absolutely right. And then it flashes up at the bottom, Jim Watt's scorecard. And he's given every round to Mora. Every round. <laughs> I was really? like, what? I was pretty stunned. Um, I don't, sorry, I think he gave one round of 10-10. Um, but this is, this what? is why Jim Watt has now been sacked from Sky Sports. I, I know, I know. I just thought it was hilarious in the context of they flashed it up and he had received a 10 for every round. Um, but I mean, judging by the state of Bofa as he came out for the 12th, if you just saw that alone, you would think, yeah, fair enough. He, I, I cannot believe that his corner allowed him to come back out for that 12th round. He was out on his feet. The knockdown at the end of the 11th where he was saved by the bell was just brutal. And the fact that he had a minute and he was back out there to take punches again was a bit of a joke. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was a really entertaining fight. It was well worth um, watching, covering, mentioning. And the scorecard for this fight is actually available online. Um, and I scored this fight, uh, well, scored. Obviously, at the end of the 11th, I had more of 106 to 101, including a 10-10. Um, and two of the other, two of the other judges had pretty much what I had. There was a, both, two of them had 106 more at 100, uh, for both. Uh, and bear in mind, everyone, those three, me included, I'm guessing you two, you were scoring the fight, scored round 11, 10-7 to Mora, which makes the decision of the third judge to have, at the end of the 11th, both at 104-103 ahead, having been, at the end of round 10, he had the score line, the scorecard, uh, Mora 93, both are 97. Don't understand that at all. Um, but yeah, um, 10 7 across the board in round 11, and I think you guys are right. There was, uh, certainly, um, very much a case for not sending, not sending, uh, both are out for round 11, uh, round 12. So we get to our main event, which is about sanctioned by the World Boxing Association. Amongst the commissioners from the Nevada State Athletic Commission, we have the one and only Lorenzo Fatita. Um, so your M- you MMA fans will, uh, find that pretty interesting. Our judges are Dalby Shirley, Jerry Roth and Frederico Volmer. Mitch Halpern referees his 35th World Championship bout. The challenger fighting out of Atlanta, Georgia, weighed in at 215 pounds. He has a record of 32 wins, three losses. It's the real deal, Evander Holyfield. And the defending champion fighting out of Catskill, New York, went in at 222 pounds. He has a record of 46 wins and just one loss, Iron Mike Tyson. It has to be noted that there are quite a lot of boos for Tyson as he is introduced. Round one, Tyson comes out fast. He hurts Holyfield immediately with a big right cross. The announcer says that it looks like Holyfield is going to stand toe-to-toe, and if he does that, he is going to get knocked out. 
Tyson continuously closes the distance, but is able to unland effectively following that opening punch. Holyfield lands the better blows, counter-punching. Holyfield continues to tie Tyson up as he moves forward, and he shoves him backwards throughout the remainder of the round. Tyson lands a punch after the bell, and an unintimidated Holyfield retaliates and lands one of his own. Uh, so, Bob, thoughts on round one of the main event? Yeah, uh, electric start. Tyson coming out as we, you know, uh, in, in the other fights I've seen around this time, coming coming out. And one thing I noticed, you know, every Tyson thing I've seen, both this fight and, and stuff prior, is that he only ever seems to move in one direction. He only ever seems to move forward and then get pushed back. And maybe that was more just to the extent, um, because Holyfield was pushing him back. The Selden fight, he, he moved forward, landed a couple, and then Selden just spent the rest of the round on the run. Um, but he landed a few, and I thought the most significant, what perhaps one of the most significant part of the fights was about 15 seconds in when he landed, I think, a left. And then kind of Holyfield staggered a bit and ended up stumbling back towards the ropes. I think that was the moment where he thought, oh, this might be all over. And Holyfield kind of regained his composure and then got involved. And I think that was probably the moment that Tyson realised he was in for a fight. Dan. Yeah, I agree with Bob that when Holyfield does his little skip back on the ropes after 15 seconds, you're thinking this is in for a very short uh, fight and it looks like it's going to be a Tyson demolition job just again. But I wouldn't go as far as saying that this was, you know, round in and you'll immediately know that Tyson's in a fight because it's just run round. You know, with a guy with that much vaunted power, he can crack you, you know, whenever he wants to and it, it was, it's no, it's no kind of given that just because Holyfield lasted around, it's going to be a, a long night, which it turned out to be. Um, I, I scored this first round of Tyson, even though Holyfield was impressive and kind of more competitive than a lot of people thought. So I, I think Tyson at this stage is probably thinking, okay, it, it's might be a little tougher than I thought it would be, but it's still, I've hurt him a little bit. You know, just keep patient and I'll, I'll get through him. You know, at this point. Holyfield's obviously in a good position because he's tasted Tyson's power. He's, you know, he knows he can easily be on his toes and he's pushing him back and he's, you know, he's, he's landing shots, you know, which is the most important thing. So both fighters would have been happy with their opening uh, three minutes. I also what? scored this uh, to Tyson. What that's worth. Yeah, I was just going to come to you and see what you thought. I gave this a 10-10. Um, I thought Tyson, obviously you say the first 15 seconds or so, but I thought from then on, Holyfield regained his composure remarkably quickly and I thought he controlled the clinch. He scored with a few good left hooks whenever Tyson did get inside. Um, I thought he was relatively controlled for the remainder of the round. So I gave this a 10-10. That was a little side note. Uh, round two. The uh, opening of this round followed the pattern of the first round with Tyson moving forward but unable to land, land anything significant before Holyfield tied him up in the clinch. Holyfield lands an excellent counter uh, as Tyson looks for the clinch himself. Commentators note that Tyson is unable to bully, bully, bully Holyfield in the way he has done with lesser opponents. Holyfield then does what no opponent has been able to do to Mike Tyson since Buster Douglas did it almost seven years earlier. He drives him back, forces him against the ropes, lands flush combinations, uh, most notably a powerful left hook which snapped Tyson's head back. Holyfield continues to slip Tyson's punches for the rest of the round, and this was most certainly not in the script. Uh, Bob, any thoughts on round two? 
Um, no, just quickly, uh, I scored this one to Holyfield, and I think this was the story of the, of, well, of the rest of the fight, I suppose, and certainly the next couple of rounds was Tyson not really being able to land much, Holyfield being slightly better, but I think the, you know, one, the story was just how many times the referee had to break them up, but also just how easily Holyfield was pushing Tyson back, um, and basically closing the space. And one thing I thought Bruno in the fight with Tyson did very well was I thought Bruno kept walking into Tyson's punches where I felt that Holyfield found the balance to not walking into them, but being able to close up the gap every time Tyson got close. And I think the, Physically, he, he manhandled him, I, I suppose. But yeah, I, I scored this fight too, uh, this round to Holyfield. Uh, Dan? Yeah, again, we with Bob. I think this was the round where he kind of got the overarching story to the fight established, where Holyfield is not only being able to survive Tyson's, but kind of, or not walk, and kind of walk through it and show him that he is the dominant person, you know, force of personality that isn't going to wilt under the intimidation and the aura of Tyson, and he's going to fight back. And and as we get into the rounds, I think this was the start of it, where Holyfield is kind of imprinting the blueprint of how to kind of combat Tyson, which is just clinch him up, work on the inside, and allow him to not bully you in on the inside by, you know, when he twists your arm, you twist back. And when he's pushing you, you push back with your more force. And although that would expend a bit of energy... In the long run, and as we show, Tyson's mental kind of game is nowhere close to the power in his fist. So when he's been pushed back, he has no idea what to do. And it kind of showed when Holyfield was able to back him up, he was kind of like, he was stunned stuck. Yeah, a comfortable 10 9 for Holyfield here. Um, firmly in control. Took the round with ease. Used his height, his reach, and seemingly strength advantage in the clinch. Uh, just controlled the round start to finish. Pretty comfortable. Uh, moving to round three, Holyfield presses forward, his confidence clearly growing as the fight progresses. In the clinch, Holyfield lands two flush right uppercuts in quick succession. The ref calls him halfway through the round. The ref calls time uh, halfway through the round for persistent clinching by both men. The fight resumes, Tyson lands a cheap shot, and the referee tries to force a break and is warm. Uh, Tyson wins a small, a few small exchanges following this, but largely Holyfield controls the remainder of the round following the dominant pattern of pushing Tyson back into the clinch and bullying the bully. Uh, I scored that round uh, 10-9 Holyfield in the third. Uh, he landed the most effective punches of the round in the early going and again proceeded to control the majority of the remainder um, outside of the opening 15-20 seconds or so. Has been fairly comfortable and fairly one-sided for Holyfield. I move straight on to round four. Mike Tyson seemingly hasn't adapted his game plan at all. Evander Holyfield's unrelenting dominance in the clinch was evident yet again, but the rate of his counterpunching slowed down significantly. Tyson probably had more success landing individual punches throughout this round than in the three prior, but did no real damage and didn't take control in a particularly notable way, but was still an improvement from Tyson. Uh, round four, I gave that 10-9 to Tyson. It was a really close round for me, probably not as close as the first one, but I think Tyson did just enough uh, landing with more frequency than he had done in any of the three prior rounds. Um, and it was notable that Holyfield did slow down his counter-punching quite significantly at this stage. So uh, round five, I moved straight into that as well. 
they clinch from the off with regular breaks, but Tyson begins to take control as he starts to throw and land some combinations finally. He forces Holyfield back with a hard combination to the body before landing a succession of uppercuts that back Holyfield off. Holyfield is barely throwing at this stage, let alone landing, and Tyson is able to consistently overcome the reach disadvantage and land punches regularly for really the first time in the fight. Holyfield does grow into the round and begins to land counter punches as Tyson pushes forward towards the end, but this was Tyson's best round of the fight so far. Me, I gave the round five a 10-9 to Tyson. Uh, it was good to see him finally start throwing some combinations to the head and body, and as a result, uh, rather than just throwing the, the quick one-two or individual punches, I thought he had his best round. So I'll come to you, Bob, for thoughts on the third, fourth, and fifth rounds. I'll send it straight to Dan. I'll give Dan an opportunity to open up. <laughs> oh, thanks, Bob. Um I think if you were betting on Tyson, I think this is the point where you are pretty confident that Tyson's now beginning to show his dominance. I mean, Holyfield, you know, he's, he's finally starting to tie a little bit. Tyson is beginning to show the kind of power and the combination skills that he's so, you know, been vaunted for. And although he's not hurting Holyfield right now, he's still being able to now kind of, kind of throw some shots away. And given the amount of hype and power that we've on Tyson, when those shots are starting to come, you are expecting Holyfield to to get at least hurt um, as the fight draws on. And you know, it's not like Holyfield had an, an, an a unbreakable chin um, throughout his career because he has been stopped a couple of times. Um, so yeah, I think this was probably Tyson's best round of the entire fight, and I think this was at that point a pivotal moment for Holyfield to arrest back control. Um, yeah, quickly on three and four, I scored both of those for Holyfield, but I don't think either of them were, were particularly eventful. Um, this, I agree with Dan, this was Tyson's best fight of the round. What One thing I, I noted down um, at the end of round four when they, when they were going to the corner um, was the cornerman telling Tyson, when you're inside, he's holding you up. Get under him, bend your knees, and use threes and fours. Dad, I'm assuming threes and fours is just threes and three and four combination punches, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it didn't seem like in the later rounds Tyson was listening to his corner munch, or he, either he was, he just wasn't able to kind of process it and, and execute it. Um, but this was his best round of the fight. He was landing some stuff, and this was probably the only round of the fight where Holyfield really closed the gap up and Tyson was able to land um, and really kind of push him away in terms of with, with strikes rather than with power, because he clearly wasn't going to be able to push him away using power. But using strikes, he was able to kind of push him back and rock him a bit. Um, Tyson's best round of the fight, and up to this point, I have it scored 48-47, Evander Holyfield, at the end of the fifth. Yeah, I think me and Chris have got it, 48-47, Tyson. I I have it as a draw at the moment. I gave two rounds each in the first round of 10-10. Yeah. Um, So even on my scorecard. So, so, so this stage pre- pretty even, and, and I think Dan, you're probably right. If you had money on Tyson, you'd watch this round and go, okay, yeah, he's had a couple of slow rounds, but he's starting to work the difference out, and now he's going to kind of go in and push for the kill, and then, uh, and then Chris, we get round six. Yes, so we get to round six. 
Tyson presses forward early, but Holyfield manages to use Tyson's own momentum against him and turns him against the ropes. Uh, they close the distance quite swiftly, and Mitch Halpin sees a headbutt from Holyfield, but judges it to be accidental. He calls time anyway, as it's opened a cut above Tyson's left eye. Uh, we're back underway pretty quickly. Tyson immediately, and pretty recklessly, presses forward, and is caught flush by a flurry of punches by Holyfield. Tyson then responds with an excellent right cross, but Holyfield again answers with a hard right of his own. The crowd erupts, chanting, Holyfield. Tyson begins to look a little wobbly. He walks forward without purpose, straight into a left hook from Holyfield. Tyson tries a left hook of his own, but Holyfield lands a counter left uppercut and drops Tyson. Tyson is knocked down for just the second time in his professional career. He takes a standing eight count and the fight continues with less than 30 seconds remaining in the round. They tie up before Holyfield unleashes a barrage of punches with a few stiff legs, left hooks connecting. Back, backing a stunned Tyson against the ropes. The crowd are going wild, and the round ends with Tyson surviving. Uh, we'll go to Dan first on round six. Oh, this is the round you live for as a boxing fan, <laughs> because it, it's just great, you know, because there's, there's nothing you know, like boxing to kind of make you go, whoa! And, you know, a kind of knockdown happens, and when it's like a guy like Tyson, it's, it's incredible to see, because I think this was the the moment where he just goes, he, he's just mentally just, he just jolts the ball. Um, he, he's knocked down. He's, it's not like Buster Douglas where this is a guy who, you know, he's, he's not trained for it. This is a guy who's prepared well. He's coming fit. He's coming strong, but he's been outclassed. He's been outbullied and he's been, t- he's been taken away from him. And, you know, Holyfield is, is just so smart with it because Tyson's going for these haymakers. He, He's given him time and allowing him to counterpunch, and thanks to his Olympic experience, he's got the ability to do that. And the uppercut he hits is gorgeous. You know, it's a brilliantly timed shot, and it just completely takes away Tyson's leg. And it was great, you know, did, in did And the crowd—you'll be able to speak to this much more than I will. Sorry, cutting you off. But did Tyson fall into that uppercut a little bit? It felt like he went for a punch and kind of just kind of was slightly off balance. And credit for the Holyfield for finishing him off. But was that a? Well, was that a true knockdown? I, you know, I'm getting into parlance that I'm not particularly qualified to be able to say. But was this a, was that full credit to Holyfield for a great shot? Or was it a case of Holyfield caught Tyson off balance a little bit? I think, like, knockdowns wise, you take advantage of the opportunity. And, you know, a punch that you not necessarily mean to be like, okay, this is a punch that's going to knock this guy down. It's just, you see a guy a little bit off balance and you go bang. It's, it's just a, it's just a kind of natural um, instinct of, of of great counterpunches like Holyfield. So although Tyson's off balance probably did, you know, affect his balance a little bit when he, when obviously taking the shot, you know, that's part of the problem with with any knockdown. Really, half the problem is a guy. If a guy's, you know, he can take one of the best punches in the world, but if he's see if he sees it coming, if he if he's prepared for the for the shot to hit him, he can survive it. Tyson clearly was off balance and he didn't see the shot coming. Yeah. So that was probably the why the knockdown happened. Um, so, yeah. Sorry for cutting you off there, Dan. But I, I, I take it all three of us scored that a 10-8, Chris? Yeah, 10-8 round. Um, only building complete control. If you had a little bit more time, you may have ended the fight in that round. Tyson was saved by the bell in the sense that after the knockdown, he was on real shaky legs and he was taking hard shots up against the ropes. He didn't look like he was getting, that, getting out of that situation. 
if it weren't for the bell necessarily. I mean, Dan, Dan's um, right. This was a, a hell of a round. I mean, we can probably discuss the the headbutt and all all that in a sec as well. But yeah, a hell of an exciting round. I just wonder whether this was the round where Tyson kind of lost all hope. Came out in round five, had a really good round five, landed some real good stuff. And Tyson's a guy who, you look at Tyson's entire career, you can count on one hand the amount of, one hand the amount of fights Tyson had leading to this point that had really gone any kind of distance. Tyson was a guy that finished people who he was better than, who he was better than, and finished them quickly. So it's almost like he kind of went for round one, didn't work, struggled in two, three, and four, kind of got himself together in round five, came back out at a really strong round, and then the bell rings for round six, you know, like, he's still there. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, that, this is, a, a, well, to a, the early doors, this is quite an even round. And then I just wonder whether this was the real turning point in the fight, was it was the point where Tyson had kind of spent a lot of his energy, and Holyfield just had more than he did. Um, great knockdown. Down thoughts on the headbutt and everything to do with that because that was kind of an ongoing not an accidental headbutt, it was kind of a coming to collision of heads, but that was a kind of story of the fight or one of them. Yeah, I think the other part of the Tyson story is that, you know, when it comes, if people do try and clinch up to him, he just bullies them and just gets them out of the way as much quickly as possible and kind of makes them aware that, hey, you're in the ring with my Tyson pal, you know, I'm going to make your life hell for all the time you're going to spend in this ring. And Holyfield Part of the reason I think he, why he demoralized Tyson so much was because he was so good at the clinch and so good at the infight and um, insides work. You know, there's a point, I can't remember if it was round four or, or five, where Tyson gives him a little nudge with the head um, halfway through the round. And Holyfield gives a little look to referee and goes, oi, oi, you know, keep an eye on that. And, and then I guess I think, I think it's 20 seconds into the, before the bell rings and Holyfield gets in the clinch and gives him a nudge back. And it's just a little thing like that, which I thought was really good to show that I'm not intimidated by you. And this, unfortunately, this is what happens in boxing, unfortunately, when you get a lot of guys clinching up and and they're throwing their bodies at each other and they kind of just, unfortunately, heads can clash. And I just thought, you know, you, you, you hear the crowd when they spot that Tyson's got a cut and there's this big swell of ground support for Holyfield then. That's where the chance start. I thought, was, yeah, that, you know, even though that could have affected Tyson, we don't know. We, we know he loved to play the bad guy, but whether deep down inside he thought he, he would have got some cheers from the crowd who've paid to see him effectively and then turn on him. We don't know, but you know, I thought that was quite interesting as well. A fair, a fair assessment that Tyson loved to play the bad guy in the fight, but he was never, he was never in a, before the fight, sorry, but he was never in the fight long enough to where he's had to be one during it. Like, he loved to be a bad guy yeah. kind of in the build-up, but then he won his fight, and everyone was like, well, we don't like you, but you're bloody good, so we'll cheer you anyway. And this was him kind of getting beat, you know, kind of getting done by a crowd that had, had found their favourite. Yep. Um, so let's move straight into round seven. Uh, both main clinch in the early going, uh, but the ref calls for the break. Tyson is certainly a lot more passive than he has been in every round up until this point, understandably. Whenever Tyson does try to close the distance, Holyfield is able to hold him off with his jab or successfully tie things up quickly if Tyson does manage to get inside. Tyson lunges forward and Holyfield ducks his head, resulting in a horrible clash of heads towards the end of the round. 
Tyson cries out in pain and his knees buckle and the referee's calls time. The referee judges the headbutt again to be accidental and the doctor gives Tyson the okay to continue. According to the rules, it is explained by the commentator, if the fight has to be stopped as a result of an accidental headbutt and four rounds have passed, the outcome is determined by the judges' scorecards. I guess you could say luckily for Tyson at this point, the action does continue as if the fight had been stopped, Holyfield would have certainly been winning on the scorecards at this point. Uh, before I come to you guys, I have to say, I'd like to see your thoughts on this. The headbutt in this round, certainly. Not so much the, the one in round six, but this one here, I thought Holyfield was exceptionally lucky that that headbutt was deemed accidental. And that was a bit of a catch-22 because, as you say, he's lucky it was deemed... I just thought, the way Tyson pressed forward with intent, Holyfield just lent his head down towards Tyson and it caught him exactly where the cut over Tyson's left eye was. And I'm not really sure that dropping your head forwards towards the shorter opponent who has less reach is particularly natural movement if you're looking to avoid punches. Um, I thought it, it looked like he was putting his head where he knew there would be contact there. Um, there seemed to be intent behind that one. Uh, that being said... Uh, I gave this round 10-9 to Holyfield, and I thought it was clearly his round again. He was able to control Tyson well with his jab throughout and uh, tie him up whenever he got inside, as I said. So, uh, Bob, come to you on this one. Thoughts on the round and thoughts on the controversial headbutt? Yeah, I mean, Dan will be able to better speak about it. Dan will see a lot more boxing as to you know whether that was a proper accident or whether there was anything behind that. To me, it looked a little bit suspicious. I mean, you know, the the coming together the round before did look like a bit of a coming together. And to an extent, when you're clinching so much and your heads are getting so close, it's kind of going to happen. But in this one, Tyson was very much on the walk when their heads collided. And it's, yeah, they, they do a proper slow-mo of this. And Tyson kind of... The heads clash and his kind of front leg kind of starts to go and then his, his trading leg kind of follows in as he's effectively walking in. And they both arrive at about the same spot and then his knees just go and it really looks horrid. Um, I'll be able to speak better about that. But yeah, I agree. I, I gave uh, Holyfield this round. Other than that, I thought he was clearly on top and um, Tyson was uh, just this stage. I just thought he was starting to suffer. Dan. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't see anything untoward. <laughs> I don't know whether it's just me just kind of being kind of just like, ah, whatever. But yeah, I, I kind of just thought it was just a national clash of heads. But yeah, yeah, you might be right. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not calling conspiracy. I, I, I'm just saying there's, there's perhaps, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody could argue that it wasn't or that it was deliberate. But yeah, I know what you mean. It wasn't, uh, yeah. certainly wasn't the most overt thing, I don't think. No, um, I've got to be honest, I, I can't remember the top of my head exactly. I, I can remember Tyson's reaction, but I can't remember the precise Holyfield movement. So I can't give an exact kind of reasoning for my opinion, I'm afraid. But yeah, I, when I first saw it, I just thought, okay, that's just another coming together of, of, of unlucky head clashes. But I thought I was, i got to be honest, I was really disappointed with Tyson coming out in, in this round. It just kind of showed again that he had no plan B whatsoever. He felt lazy. He wasn't putting in, he didn't give a real drive and didn't kind of up his output. And, you know, it's just trying, didn't try anything different. And, and 
short, you know, the great boxers work out how to beat, you know, a different tactic that isn't working. And Tyson's, I don't know, just became too arrogant maybe with the, you know, his smash mouth, get him in, you know, come in, leave early style of fighting that when a guy kind of was out bullying him, he just hadn't got a clue what to do. And yeah, yeah this I, I round just, clearly I just was... That he had... Sorry, Dan. No, I was, I was going to say, just like, this kind of really showed that he just has a poor mental kind of fortitude and I, you know, considering what happened with Douglas as well, you know, with the preparation before that, it's. I think this round was a clear example of just how mentally Tyson doesn't kind of stack up with some of the greats. That there's always the thought, I think, probably in all sports, that you you often learn a lot more by losing than by winning, and that teams that win a lot often can lose in really very ugly fashions and and this kind of felt like that tyson spent so much of his career just plowing through people and as i say i've only seen certain stuff but i'll tell you what i've saw and he won matches just by running up the middle like there was no side to side movement in any of the fights i saw because he never really needed it like if, if he faces faces selden and he runs up the middle hits him with a big right and then selden spends the rest of the round on the run he just spends the rest of the round following him around the ring how do, Tyson can't learn anything from that. And you look at someone like Holyfield, who's been in a lot more battles, a bit more battle-weary. Uh, Tyson got to this point, and we say he didn't have a plan B. He's never had a plan B, or he's never needed one. And plan A always works so well. Why have a plan B? Um, but, yeah, I, I just wonder whether, in hindsight, if he could have come this round seven a bit more fresh, or in one of the earlier rounds, he might have gone, okay, that's maybe change it up. When you've been doing the same thing for so long, when you've been boxing up the middle for so long, maybe trying to work out a second strategy on the fly just isn't possible. Dan, what do you think about that? Yeah, possibly. And there's always the attitude of stick with what you know, and if it's working, why change it? But, you know, and again, the corner, I don't know how much kind of say they had in his kind of career. And there's a lot of um, examples in the past where fighters have kind of, don't, don't think they need trainers anymore because, you, know, you know, look at modern day kind of, you know, the Eubanks have always kind of treated their um, trainers with disdain and they kind of always know what's best. So I don't know if, if the trainer, even if the trainer could think of a plan B, Tyson would just said A, didn't have the capacity. A on B didn't have the kind of attitude to kind of just follow their advice because I just thought he just looked really lazy and just he just lost all of his heart. And that's the, and unfortunately, that's what the mark of a true champion in boxing is that you can, um, come back off the floor, try something different and, and make a, and make a comeback. And that's, that's what separates the, the real elites from, you know, the, the, the very goods. And Tyson in this kind of round seven showed that he just didn't have it. Okay. So we'll move on to round number eight. Um, Holyfield continues to control Tyson with his jab on the outside and whenever Tyson does get inside ties up in the clinch and controls that too. Even when Tyson does land, Holyfield lands right back and probably has more power behind his punches at this stage. So uh, Tyson tries Tyson moves forward and looks for a powerful right hook but Holyfield slips it and lands one of his own. Holyfield comfortably sees out the rest of the round in the same manner 
I gave this round a comfortable 10-9, one of the easiest rounds to score. Um, Holyfield, again, sticking to the game plan we've seen throughout all the previous rounds, exploiting that reach, exploiting the power in the clinch, and controlling Mike Tyson. And as you both just summed up after the last round, Tyson clearly has no plan B. He has no idea how he's going to begin to turn this one around. So round nine, again, Holyfield in full control. Tyson starts increasing his output, but he's missing wildly. Whenever Tyson does land, Holyfield just digs in, never looks hurt, never looks intimidated, and lands right back. The crowd again erupts with chants of Holyfield. Holyfield backs Tyson against the ropes, but eats an uppercut, and both men begin to throw wild punches uh, before they clinch, and the round ends. Uh, I scored this round again, a 10-9 to Holyfield. Uh, it was probably Tyson's best round since the fifth, but he still lost it fairly comfortably, I felt. Again, same pattern that we've seen. Holyfield sticking to that game plan. It's worked so well throughout, and it's working well now. Uh, so, Dan, come to you on thoughts on the eighth and ninth rounds. Uh, yeah, just more of the same. Holyfield is in a groove. He knows what he's doing. He's This game plan's perfect perfectly. And Tyson's not doing anything to make him change it. It's... When you when you're an e boxer, that's what the kind of situations you're you're looking for, really. Um, if you're doing what you're doing and your and your opponent's got nothing to kind of change up, just keep doing what you're doing. You're going to score the rounds in the bank. Tyson hasn't hurt him at all, and as we've seen, he doesn't look like he's going to hurt him at all because his his energy is just drained. And his, and his he's going for the haymakers, which makes it even easier for like Holyfield to to exploit. And at this point, I think Holyfield must be on. Must be kind of like I wouldn't say counting the down the the rounds, but he must think in the back of his mind that yes, this is this could be my day. Well, yeah, um, two very clear wins round wise for uh, for Holyfield, and you know we well I don't want to jump ahead too far, but yeah, the, the, the some of the post match stuff that Tyson was was struggling to remember even a lot of the later rounds, I suspect that says. A, a lot about his state of mind at that point that he just wasn't really on it um there was there was stuff going on he was he was trying to land some stuff but Holyfield probably never looked more comfortable at any point in the fight than he did in these two rounds even even two three and four where I think he won well I, I think we had a slight difference in the scoring but I felt he won two three and four quite comfortably as a whole um even in those rounds where he was stifling Tyson quite comfortably, it was very much more of a physical battle. At this point, I think to an extent, like I mean, I, I had a, I had it 78, 73 at the end of round eight, so it would have been 88, uh, 82 at the end of round nine. Um, at that stage, all Holyfield's got to do is just kind of to an extent see the rest of the fight out and make sure you don't walk into anything silly. Um, and Tyson never looked like he was going to throw anything that was going to make him do that. No, absolutely. Uh, just following that pattern that we spoke about throughout this fight. We move into round number 10. Tyson starts this round positively. Probably his best start to the round, to a round, since the very first. He lands a few combinations. Holyfield looks to tie him up. Holyfield gets caught with a hard straight right by Tyson, which sends him backtracking. And that's the first time, probably, since Tyson's very first punch that Holyfield has shown any sort of signs that one of Tyson's punches have hurt him. Tyson follows it up with a crisp left hook, but Holyfield grabs on. Referee breaks, 
and Tyson presses forward looking to hurt Holyfield again, but he's unable to do so, with Holyfield once again having gained his composure remarkably quickly. He once again begins to assert control of the contest. Tyson was far too passive in the immediate aftermath of those punches, but I'm not too sure he had much else left in him. With less than 20 seconds remaining in the round, Holyfield lands a perfectly placed counter right to the temple and rocks the champion. Tyson, instead of forcing the clinch, tries to continue to trade shots despite clearly being dazed. Holyfield lands another huge right, which buckles Tyson's legs and sends him stumbling quickly across the ring, barely managing to keep himself standing, only the ropes preventing the knockdown. Holyfield lands a huge flurry and lands at least eight clean punches in the last ten seconds before the end of the round, and Tyson somehow manages to stay on his feet and survive. Tyson, at the end of the round, is completely out on his feet. Uh, Bob, uh, thoughts on round ten, which was just another absolutely stunning round. Yeah, um, you know, I think Tyson saved up a little bit in the tank and even whether he was told it in his corner or whether he worked it out in his dazed state of mind, just thought, I'm only going to win this with a KO. So he came out with everything he had left. And, he, you know, he caused Holyfield some problems, but never anything where it looked like Holyfield was in any massive danger. And then he just ran out of legs and the lights finally went off and Holyfield just picked him off. And in that final 20-odd seconds, I mean, much like the... um much like the both of fight previously, very good case of stopping this right at the end of the uh, at the end of the tenth round as well. Tyson was done by that point. He, he used up his last bit of energy. Holyfield was picking him off, and had the round been thirty seconds longer, it would have been over. Dan, yeah, just what Bob said. I think that's uh, a really good a really good analysis of it. I think Tyson, you know, his game is is all about. You know, the haymaker, he went all in, but when you go all in, you always leave yourself more exposed. And all Holyfield had to do was last out that initial onslaught and wait for Tyson to to use up that extra bit of gas he might have saved up for throughout round seven to nine and then catch him. And then he did that, you know, waited, waited for his moment, took his chance and then give him credit because, you know, he spotted Tyson was hurt. He... It could have been easily just cut another round in the bank um, and walk his way to a decision because it was clear that Tyson was spent at this point. Um, Holyfield could have just jabbed and, and given him a couple of uppercuts and, and he eked out a decision. But no, he went for it and he he almost killed him. <laughs> it was just, you know, when you get those un, unanswered punches, you know, right and forth, I think a British referee probably would have stopped that fight at that point. But Tyson, you know, it, it was a kind of sorry sight just seeing him just kind of trudge back to the corner just completely dead on his feet and it was at the moment where we all knew that the um the legend of and the aura of Tyson had been completely popped yeah this was an incredible round really um before Tyson landed his two best punches of the entire fight but as Bob said um it didn't really put Holyfield in that much danger and that's the credit to Holyfield he, it, and he did, did a bit but I think it was more the case of with that Tyson was able to land some significant punches but he had no energy to follow them up and so even though he was able to push Holyfield back a bit he didn't. He wasn't able to follow up with 2, 3 and 4 so Holyfield was just able to wear them I think that was probably the biggest problem he had 
yeah, um, I thought it was just, it's, it's just a, it was striking how Holyfield just taking a couple of steps back was so significant in highlighting that this was Tyson's best offense because it really brought out to me just how little success, um, Tyson had had on offense throughout the entire fight. Um, how many times he'd been able to push Holyfield back was absolutely minimal and, uh, Holyfield took those punches, came back, regained his composure immediately and, uh, in my mind, really should have finished the contest. Not, not that he should have finished it, but it should have been called off. Um, let alone them punches he lands while Tyson's on the rope at the end. But just the image of this completely bewildered, like, not scared, but more confused Mike Tyson with these glazed over eyes, just trudging back to his corner. Like, he has no idea where he is. He's completely out on his feet at the end of this round. It was stunning to me that he was able to come back out because he had no clue what was happening at the end of this round. Um, I, I don't know how his legs didn't give way as he took those punches um, against the ropes. It, it wasn't even the case. The ropes kept him up initially, but he sort of bounced back off them and stood up and just stood and took them. He wasn't even laying on the ropes at the end. I can't, I can't believe he didn't go down. Um, I... I thought there was a strong case for stopping this fight at the end of the round and at the very least maybe not having Tyson's corner send him back out and you sometimes you just have to step up and take a bit of responsibility and protect your fighter because the only way that this was going to go in round 11 was Tyson was going to get massacred and quickly. He, he wasn't there anymore. He, he was mentally done um, and physically done as well. So we move into round 11 uh, as Tyson comes out. Uh, he still doesn't look right at the beginning of this round. Uh, reiterate, I probably think he shouldn't have been sent back out for this. Holyfield quickly begins landing brutal combinations almost at will. He sends Tyson flying back into the ropes. Mitch Halpin has seen enough and steps in to cool the fight after 37 seconds of the 11th round. And we have a new world heavyweight champion. The crowd goes absolutely ballistic. Uh, Dan, thoughts on this short 11th round? Uh, and I guess to an extent, the fight overall and our new world champion. Yeah, it was um, a really, a really brilliant redemption story for Holyfield. I mean, you know, since they kind of both emerged in '88 with you know heavyweight title wins, Tyson had always been the guy who was the star, and Holyfield, although he was a star in his own right, was never really in the public eye as much as Tyson was, and all the questions were can you beat Mike Tyson to secure your legacy? It was never the other way around. And, you know, for all the postponements that we've talked about and all the kind of, you know, publicity that went along with this fight, it just felt like Holyfield just proved once and for all that he was the bit, the better fighter. Um, just in terms of his tactics were spot on, the ability to stop that, that monstrous left hook by blocking it and then clinching and being able to out-bully Tyson on the inside the counters that he made to kind of take away Tyson's soul in the sixth round and then just outwork him and then just finish him off in true predator style that all heavyweight have to, all heavyweight boxers have to do to kind of, you know, really prove to be a successful star. And I just thought it was incredible just kind of just seeing how much the commentators and the atmosphere beforehand was just this is going to be another routine Tyson demolition and Holyfield just being able to completely 
rewrite the script and completely change the way history looks at these two guys. Uh, Bob, thoughts on the uh, final round and the contest as a whole? Yeah, not much to say about the round, really, was there? I mean, I think round 10, it was as good as over. Holyfield just came out round 11, and I think I think the, the centre was correct. I'm not sure that um, Mike Tyson should have even been sent out there. As for the fight, I thought Holyfield fought an excellent match. Um, I think he'd clearly done his preparation beforehand. I think he clearly had worked out the the best way to combat Mike Tyson. I thought he executed that excellently. Um, you know, and Tyson to his credit, it's you know, this was a long fight and there were times when he, he fought back in this fight once or twice. Even even in round ten we saw kind of, you know, the light was fading but he was still going for it. Um but Holyfield I thought fought an excellent fight and I think he he showed Maybe I'm overdoing it, saying he showed up Mike Tyson to be a very one-dimensional boxer, but it certainly felt like it. Um, you would expect if Tyson was the the champion and the the great boxer that um, he was perceived to be, that he would have been able to adapt when it clearly wasn't working. Um, and his way of adapting was just taking a longer run up, swinging his arms a little bit further, and just hoping for the best. And when that didn't work, he just had no answer. And and this was definitive. There's, you know, boxing, MMA, things like that. You can have certain fights that end quite quickly. Like, well, he hit a lucky punch. This was a definitive victory. Vander Holyfield definitively won this fight. And full credit to him. I think the, the story was excellent. And 25 to 1 when the fight opened up. 6 to 1 prior to the fight immediately. Um, well, Holyfield deserves everything he got from that. Yeah, yeah, both summed it up. This was just a combination of a perfect game plan from Evander Holyfield. Absolutely spot on from start to finish. Every second of this fight, he was in control. He was composed. He was calm. He was never intimidated. And that probably is the most important point, the lack of intimidation. Um, I said earlier uh, that Holyfield was the one pushing for the fight in 91. Uh, when they were both probably more at the peak of their careers. And uh, he said he, he knew spiritually that when he got in with Mike Tyson, he, he knew he would beat him. And he had, that that doesn't seem, in the aftermath of this fight, that doesn't seem like a quote. That doesn't seem like a soundbite that he said. He fought this fight like he believed that, like he had this sort of spiritual guidance and he was going to pick up the win here no matter what. He fought this fight with the lack of fear and the confidence in his own ability that he believed that he was winning this fight, and he and he did. Um, perfect game plan from Holyfield, um, and a complete ineptitude and inability to adjust things, to try different things, to have a plan B ready for Mike Tyson, uh, and uh, it was just a, a stunning fight, if not um, like. For its historical significance alone, this is a stunning fight, but it was also an absolute barnstormer to watch. Thoroughly enjoyable. I'd, uh, I'd recommend everyone go and check out this fight because it was just brilliant. I'm fascinated to see what well, obviously we're going to have the rematch uh, June 97 I think fascinating to see what the kind of preparations are like for Tyson and what he's saying. 
Um, it's really interesting to see how he, how he approach, obviously we all know how it goes down, but how he approaches this fight and whether he does try and change anything up in terms of how he trains and how he kind of tactically approaches the fight. Um, that's going to be really interesting to see when we come back around for the rematch next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, shall we move on into some of the post-match, some of the quotes from the press conference and talking about the legacy of two fighters and whatnot? Let's do a little bit of that. Yeah, we are going quite late, but yeah, let's uh, let's do a bit of that as well just to finish, I think. Okay. Uh, so uh, it was notable how in the build-up to the fight, whenever they had been in the presence of each other, Tyson had either refused to speak to Holyfield or just glared at him or snarled at him. He played that bad, evil intentions, Mike Tyson character down to a T in the build-up to the fight. Uh, but in the, pre- in the uh, press conference afterwards, Tyson just turned... He said to Holyfield, I just want to shake your hand. He shook his hand and smiled. Uh, Tyson, as you said throughout the fight, he acknowledged that he couldn't remember being knocked down in the sixth. He couldn't remember being battered in the final second of the tenth. And he didn't remember the referee rescuing him after 37 seconds of the 11th. He said that he was tired. A quote from uh, Mike Tyson, he just kept fighting and I didn't know what to do. I got caught in some exchanges. In the last round, I didn't know where I was at. He then smiled again and offered his hand to Holyfield, who was sitting nearby. He said, thank you very much. I have the greatest respect for you. Um, it was uh, the, quite an interesting interview with uh, Kevin Rooney, uh, the guy who Tyson had famously sacked during the height of all his personal problems a few years prior. Uh, he watched the fight on TV, having been... Um, fired by Tyson. Tyson had new guys post uh, coming out of prison. Um, Rooney said that you can't have three or four guys talking to a fighter in a corner. Only one guy should ever be talking. Um, And he said that throughout the fight it was clear that no one was taking control in Tyson's corner and no one was giving him advice. He was getting a lot of sort of cliches from four people all at once. There was no one guy sitting him down and talking to him clearly. He said that had he been in Tyson's corner, he would have told him to jab. He said that Tyson was used to guys falling down, and when Holyfield didn't fall down, Tyson gave up. All that bragging before the fight, you shouldn't do that. Once you start bragging, you're trying to hide something. So, um, as well as a bit of advice as to how he might have tried to uh, make Tyson approach the fight differently, also a bit of um, sort of probably the personal... Uh, differences between the two men coming out there as uh, bragging is so much a part of Tyson's character in the build-up to fights. Um, anything anyone would like to add or comment on uh, to do with the aftermath of this fight? Just briefly, I whoever had been in Tyson's corner, I think beyond round six, I'm not sure you'd been able to say anything to him that you'd have been able to action. I think he was too far done. Yeah, I agree. Um, absolutely. Uh, anything to add down with any of this? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Um, and there was a final quote from uh, Rooney, I, I thought it was quite good to finish on, uh, that uh, the late Customato had uh, taught both Rooney and Tyson that boxing wasn't a clash of power, it was a clash of wills, and that because Holyfield had entered the ring and wasn't for one second afraid of Tyson, he was able to impose his will while breaking Tyson's will, because Tyson was scared that Holyfield wasn't scared. And I thought that was quite a, 
a poignant quote, and it, it, it did sum up the way that the fight um, played out quite quite well. So uh, that will bring to a close the very first edition of the Boxing 20 Years Ago podcast. So thank you to both of you for being on the show um, and for organising all of this, Bob. It's, it's been uh, fun to go back and watch this fight, and it'll be fun to do the rematch in June. Yeah, um, I, I don't, Dan will know this well, I do not count myself as a big boxing fan, but I enjoyed the hell out of of watching that fight and preparing for this show. Uh, Chris, fantastic work on your preparation, by the way. I thought you did a really good job with that. Um, and, and good to, uh, good to have Dan on as well, just so that, you know, a couple of times during it, I can say, Dan, is this right while we're going on? Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, hell of a lot of fun to do. And yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to be adding many more boxing shows onto what we're already doing. Um, but I'm certainly up for the rematch now, having seen this. Um, just to, as I say, you know, we, we know what goes down with the rematch. It's only a few rounds, but more just to see what's being said and the build up and all that kind of thing. I think that might be almost more fascinating than the fight itself. And let's be honest, fight itself is pretty damn fascinating yeah. as well. Um, round by round, that one might be needed. Yes, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but yeah, um, uh, Chris, I'll wrap up the show in a minute. But if you want to chat with Dan for a second, then I'll uh, I can come in and do all the the plugs and everything else. Yeah, so uh, thanks again for being on the show, Dan. Uh, as Bob just said, your your sort of level of boxing fandom and knowledge was uh, was crucial to uh, add in some context and insight to the opinions of casuals, as you said at the start. So, uh, <laughs> for was... casuals, I think you'll find. Filthy casuals, that's it. Yeah. So it was it was, uh, it was good to have you on the show and, and talk some boxing. No, no, no worries, guys. Uh, it was a pleasure doing this. And honestly, I you could have easily done the show without me because the level of uh, analysis that you guys did was was really good. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel free to carry on without me in the future boxing uh, podcast. <laughs> I, I believe. Uh, I, are, are, we, are we still filthy casuals, or are we are we at your respect after this two hours? Oh, you definitely earn my respect. But uh, the the um, if you can watch a Perna Whitaker fight and uh, enjoy that, then I will gladly call you a uh, hardcore fan. Fair enough, fair enough. Dan, anything you'd, like, anything you'd like to plug, Dan, while we're here? Um, if you want to hear me talk about boxing and other uh, sports as well as wrestling, uh, head over to Daniel eight eight six on Twitter. And yeah, just give me a follow if you want. If you enjoy excellent. my ramblings. Excellent, excellent. Chris, uh, your your usual stuff to plug, Twitter and anything else? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at ChrisWhite14 if you want my musings on modern day wrestling and Arsenal Football Club. And uh, it just it's nice to see that uh, <laughs> Tottenham went out the Champions League this evening while we were recording. Yes, yes, I've been following along with that the last half hour. So <laughs> I, 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 I don't have a dog in this fight, but I enjoy every club suffering equally, and it just happens to be Spurs' turn tonight. <laughs> uh, yes, some uh, some uh, some plugs to finish. Uh, first of all, we are on Patreon. If you'd like to contribute to shows like this and to others, five bucks a month, we're offering early access to our shows. We're available. WCW show would have got up last night, but thanks to the uh, National Rail, I didn't have time to edit that after I got home. Um, but yeah, or if you like early access to the show, or you just want to say thank you for us providing a, a lot of content, some of it very good, other stuff covering stuff that isn't so good, uh, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs. Links on our website or in 
the podcast description below. Three of the shows for you this month, All Wrestling. Volume 1 takes us to the WWF looking at Survivor Series. Volume 2 takes us to WCW looking at World War 3. God, what a show that is. And Volume 3 takes us to ECW looking at November to remember. Anyway, he's been Dan Welling. He's been Chris White. This has been the first ever edition of the Boxing 20 Years Ago podcast. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>